Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my dear sisters and brothers in that Christ. I'd like to start this morning by reading to you a love poem. It's a little unorthodox, and it was written around the year 700 B.C., but here it is. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Do you feel the love? Those are the words of Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet Isaiah writes as a song of love to his loved one, the Lord, singing and, and praying about the Lord's vineyard. And I share that love poem with you because I think sometimes it's difficult for us to decipher meaning and context in Scripture, is it not? So, for example, we hear Jesus tell us a parable today in, in Luke chapter 20 about a vineyard. And for you and me, and outside the context of Scripture, it could just be a random thing. Maybe Jesus was standing inside of a vineyard. Maybe he was talking over a glass of wine. And so it seems like he brings up these random things from time to time, and if you weren't there, you're never going to get it. It can be difficult for us sometimes to know the meaning and understanding and context of Scripture, unlike the people who were there. The people who were standing right in front of Jesus, who did get it. And especially, if you look at the very end of the Gospel reading that I just finished, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Luke even tells us they knew that Jesus preached and taught this parable directly against them. They got it because they understood what this picture was all about. They knew what the vineyard was. They knew who the vineyard owner was. They knew who the tenants were supposed to be. And they knew who Jesus was claiming the Son was. So here's the context. Luke chapter 20 is on Tuesday of Holy Week. So a week and two days from today. So Jesus has just ridden into Palm Sunday uh, on the donkey in, into Jerusalem with everybody waving the palm branches like we'll do next week. It's Tuesday of that week, meaning in less than, what, 72 hours? 
Jesus will be on trial and will be marching to his crucifixion. That's the context. Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, preaching and teaching people the consequences that will come for rejecting him as the Christ. You see, there, there isn't time anymore to mince words from Jesus. He's starting to give it. Even though he's talking in a parable, he's talking in a parable that everyone got because they knew the words of Isaiah chapter 5. They knew this well-known picture of God's vineyard. It was supposed to be them. It was supposed to be Israel. So, so think back to Isaiah chapter 5, those words that I read at the beginning. And, and maybe some of you will, will kind of understand the, the heartache that the Lord expresses over His vineyard. If you have your own little garden in your backyard and you've experienced those frustrations where you did absolutely everything right. You cultivated and you planted and you watered and you made sure it got sunlight and you put fertilizer on it and you gave it extra food and you made sure that no animals bothered it and the kids didn't go near it and still nothing came up. Now multiply that to span out to the size of a vineyard. And the Lord says, this is the picture of what I have done for my people. You think of the time and the energy and the work and the money that it takes to go from desert to fully functioning and operating vineyard? God says, this is what I've done for my people. He had chosen them to be His very own. He had blessed them. He had multiplied them. He had made promises to them. He led them out of slavery and gave them into a land that they did not earn, that they never could have gotten on their own. And He said, this is going to be the place that you're going to get to call home. He made them prosper and powerful. And what fruit did God ask for from His vineyard in return? God said, I don't want you to have any other gods. I want you to remember everything that I did for you, my vineyard. And I want you to live like you are my beautiful vineyard. And what do vineyards do? They produce fruit. God wasn't asking of them or expecting of them anything that He had not already provided for them. And so, from time to time, God would send servants to His people. He called them prophets. These prophets would survey Israel's fruit to see if God's people were living like God's people, to see if they were producing the fruit that God had planted. And what did Israel do to those servants? Well, here's just a quick rundown of a couple. 
Moses was the first servant that God sent to Israel. And if you remember that journey through the wilderness, they could not stand Moses. They grumbled against him at every opportunity they got. They tried to organize and set up a number of coups to overtake and replace him. One time they even tried to stone him. That was just the beginning. Elijah had a death sentence pronounced over him and had to flee for his life. Isaiah, tradition says, was sawn in two. Jeremiah was imprisoned and threatened with death threats numerous times, and Zechariah was not as fortunate as Moses. You see, the people succeeded in stoning Zechariah, and he was killed. Prophet after prophet, servant after servant, sent from God to collect fruit from God's people. And prophet after prophet, servant after servant, kept being sent away empty-handed. I once heard someone summarize the Old Testament this way. The Old Testament is really the history of the people and nation of Israel going to war against God. And how did they so regularly do that? By going to war against God's servants. They liked knowing that they were chosen people. The Israelites liked knowing that they they had some sort of special dispensation. But the fruit of their lives told an entirely different story. Eventually, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. And after generations of having and rejecting God's prophets, there before those people in the temple courts of Jerusalem on the Tuesday of Holy Week, they finally had the Son standing right in front of them. What would they do? Well, every word that Jesus preached in that parable would soon come true. In roughly 72 hours, the crowds of people who reacted to this story that Jesus tells by saying, May this never be, Jesus, changed their tune just a little and shouted to Pilate, Let this man's blood be on us and on our children, Pilate. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. What are your reactions to this parable? Even if you do get all of the connections, what is the vineyard, who are the tenants, who is the son, I think one of the responses kind of has to be confusion, right? Did God, the vineyard owner, did he really think that the tenants would respect his son? I mean, God had to know, right? This was not going to go well. 
I was reading a, a blog, sort of a, an online commentary on this parable earlier this week, and I don't normally do this, but for some reason I was scanning all the way to the bottom and there were comments. And somebody left a comment there that I found really interesting. Somebody who did not really find this story of Jesus very favorable and did not like the way that Christians normally interpret the parable, as I just laid out for you. I don't think this person was a Christian, but, but, but here's what they said. Those who analyze this story will easily notice how foolish the behavior of the owner of the vineyard was. He sent his servants one after another, and knowing that they were brutally beaten and cast out of the vineyard, nevertheless, he sent his beloved son into the same danger. Although he had the power to act, he could have just wiped them out at the end. That's what he ended up doing anyway. Why not do that before you sent your son? Although he had the full power to act, he did nothing until his son is finally killed. The owner appears ignorant of the future as he naively assumes that the wicked servants will respect his son. How can anyone compare this foolish man to God? It's a pretty fair question and kind of an important one actually. Which actually just reminded me that so often when it comes to how we view God, He willingly injects Himself into what we see as kind of being a no-win situation. Meaning, you cannot make God, the God of the Bible, look palatable to the world. You can't do it. The, commenter, the, 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 the guy who commented on that story insisted, and rightly so, I'd say, that this story makes God, the vineyard owner, look like a fool. Because no one would read this story and get up to the point where he starts to scratch his head and say, what shall I do? Aha! I'll send my son into the situation. No one would look at that and go, you know what, I, I actually think that's a great plan. I mean, that should just work out really, really well for everybody. No, it is illogical. It'll never work. And anyone with half a brain could see that from a mile away. But for some reason, God doesn't notice it. This parable makes God look like a fool. So what are his other options? What are God's, the owner of the vineyard, what are his alternatives? How could we make God look better in this story? Well, what's the opposite of what he did? Well, what if he had the tenants killed after only the first servant was beaten and sent away empty-handed? At least then, people would know that God, your God, is not one to be trifled with. Maybe. But then, honestly, what would your reaction of that kind of God be? That God is hot-tempered. That God has no patience. Seems like a pretty drastic reaction for the first time you're sending your servants in to collect some fruit. I mean, everyone makes mistakes every now and then, and he kills these tenants after making their first? 
a no-win situation. People would say, I I thought the God of the Bible was loving and kind, which is to say, I didn't think the God of the Bible, or really, I don't want God to be judgmental. And so many conclude, if God really is half as loving as all of you Christians say He is, then I'll probably be fine on my own, even if I don't believe that He exists. Not realizing that they have simply just shown themselves to be the tenants in the parable who thought, if we just get the Son out of the picture, then we will get the inheritance to ourselves. If heaven is real, I can get there without Jesus. I've worked hard enough. I've done enough good things in this life, and in the end, the vineyard should just be given to me anyway. Either way, God is not palatable to the world. So what will God do? Of all the options that we could come up with, God still goes with option A that makes him look like a fool. He keeps serving, sending servant after servant, prophet after prophet, knowing full well what will happen to them, and knowing full well this would all end in the death of his son. He shows amazing, we could even say foolish patience for this reason. The Apostle Peter once wrote, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Why? Because He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is patient. He does not want you in hell. So He is patient with you. God is willing to look like a fool to the world because He wants the world saved. He freely announces forgiveness to you today. Fully aware that in your conversations tomorrow at work or with your friends at school that you will totally be ashamed to even bring Him up. He sent His Son to die for the world, knowing that the world would interpret it, that God is careless or senseless or powerless or foolish or naive. He charges you nothing for your salvation. Instead, He pays your entrance price into heaven in full with the blood of His very own Son, knowing that you and I would look at it and say, Jesus, that looks like cheap grace. I'd rather work for it and earn it and deserve it on my own. Thank you. And this is something that you and I need to understand, brothers and sisters, something we absolutely have to wrestle with daily and come to grips with as Christians. That God's kingdom, in God's kingdom, in God's vineyard, things do not operate the way that you and I think they should They just don't. 
that what makes sense to us or looks good to the world will be the opposite for God. That what the world despises as foolish and cheap and lowly and worthless, God often treasures. Jesus makes this clear as he applies the parable. The crowd responds negatively to Jesus' parable and then he looks at them directly and asks, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, which is the second most commonly quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament passage or New Testament. This verse comes up over and over and over again. And do you see the picture? Jesus transitions a little bit from a vineyard into a building, a foundation specifically of the building, but the application is exactly the same. Jesus views someone who's building a large structure, a house, a building, a wall, and he says, there's a big pile of stones there and it's an important process that you'd have to go through each and every stone and figure out which ones are going to be the foundation, which ones are going to be the walls, and which ones are going to be just the little filler pieces that we put in at the end. But none of that mattered until you picked out the most important stone of the entire structure, which was the cornerstone. The very first stone you laid that had to be strong and sturdy, there couldn't be any cracks in it, it had to be perfectly shaped so that the size and the angles and the lines of your walls would all be good and lined up so that when you were done you could build everything else on the top of that cornerstone. Get the cornerstone wrong and the whole building is worthless, but get it right and you're good to go. And Jesus says, I I'm like a stone in the pile of rocks. And when people get to me in the world, they pick me up and they cast me aside because I don't look like anything special. The stone the builders rejected. But the Bible says what you and I by our own nature would reject, God Himself has chosen not just to be a part of this church, but to be the actual foundational cornerstone of it all. That without Jesus, there is no church. There is no salvation. Without Jesus, no one gets to heaven. This is what Jesus means with the riddle that He closes with when He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. In other words, if you want to go up against that stone, if you want to go up against Jesus, you're going to lose. There is no salvation without Him. You can beat Him up. You can shut Him up as a fool. You can even crucify Him as a criminal, but He is the cornerstone and everything else in Him holds together. Without Him, you have nothing. Which feels sort of like a downer way to end this account, doesn't it? But did you hear how Jesus actually finished the parable itself? God doesn't destroy the vineyard. He doesn't till it up and sell the land to someone else. He doesn't throw his hands in the air and say, I give up. What then will the vineyard owner of the, the owner of the vineyard do? He will give the vineyard to others. 
What others have rejected, you by grace, you by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, have received. You are the vineyard. You are a part of this planting that God so dearly loves. And God wants you to know that He is just as patient and just as foolish with you. God will continue to send you His servants. He's going to keep sending you pastors and Christian friends, even though you won't always listen to them. He will send you pastors and Christian friends who are going to encourage you to come to God's house, even though a lot of times you're just going to want to send that invitation back who are going to invite you to confess your sins and receive God's forgiveness even when you don't think you need it, who are going to encourage you to straighten out your life even when you don't think you need to. He's going to send you pastors and Christian friends who are going to call your sin a sin and invite you to receive in Jesus the forgiveness for them all. Friends who are going to invite you to make a permanent home in God's Word, to daily remember your baptism and to be a guest at His table. God will continue to do this. He will do this for you no matter what it makes Him look like. Because He is just that gracious. Because He loves you just that much. Because he does not want you, because he does not want anyone to eternally perish, but rather to know him and to know the love and peace that goes beyond all human understanding. He sent that beloved son, knowing full well what he, that he would be killed. But in his death and in his resurrection, you would be given life. And next week, you and I are privileged to see once again, once again this gracious plan of our God come to fruition. And I cannot wait to hear and ponder and receive it all again from our graciously patient vineyard owner once again with you. God grant it. Amen.